Now, he works so hard. He works so very hard. Drove a beat-up 1969 Valiant to work every single day. Car had a big hole in the floorboard. Had a glove compartment that would pop open every time we would hit a bump. Drove a 1969 Valiant so that my brother and I could go to a private high school that he knew that he could not afford. Then his company moved to Chicago. And you know what he did? He flew out of Miami early, first thing Monday morning. Flew back to Miami last thing Friday nights. We were a family on the weekends. Dad hates the cold. Man, he hates the cold. It's why we moved to Miami in the first place. And yet off to Chicago he went, cold and lonely, every Monday morning of the week for more than a year straight. He didn't want to uproot his two sons from their schools and from friends and what, was, what they were acquainted to. And so he uprooted himself instead. I've given an excerpt from an, art, uh, an article written by my, you know, it's the writer that I enjoy the most. His name is Dan Lebetard. It's about um, his father, who is, a, um, who is a friend of mine. He and his wife were Cuban exiles in, um, there in the 1950s, who came to America in order largely that their sons might enjoy a more comfortable life than what they came up with. And we hear descriptions like that of a father. We think, man, what an incredible dad that they have. You know, on Father's Day, I've always been very reluctant as a minister. I've never really been that kind of minister who will do a quote-unquote Mother's Day sermon and a Father's Day sermon. And, you know, I just have been very reluctant about doing that. And I think the main reason why I haven't really done that. It's because of all the people who I have encountered throughout my ministry, where everybody, it seems, is having just a tremendous Father's Day. Oh, my father was just so wonderful. And yet for them, Father's Day is not such a pleasant day at all for them. And that's because they, they always had a very hostile relationship with their father that was very toxic. That's because they were not loved by their fathers. I spent many years, as you might know, working in the inner city ministry. It's not everybody, but there were many, many people. In fact, I lost count of the number of individuals who, who told me that I never met my dad. Others who said, well, I could meet him if I wanted to, but no thanks. I want nothing to do with that, and I'll just let you use your imagination about the words that are used in instances like that. But I mean, our hearts break when we hear stories like that, you know? Stories like what we encountered in China when we lived there. Again, it's not every single instance, but really an alarming amount of times there are... there. There is such a thing in China called a, a hatch. Now, in China, there is a one-child limit there. And so the thinking is, if you, you're just going to have one child 
in this world, you, you want that child to really count. And so many times, if you have a child and it's mentally handicapped, if it is sick, if it is crippled, if it is albino, if it has any external, you know, quote-unquote flaws that are evident, a lot of the time, a mother or a father will take their brand new, newborn infant son or daughter and just drop them off at a baby hatch and discard it as if it were a red box DVD rental and never see that child again for the rest of their lives. And for all of those thousands of children who are just dropped off and abandoned at a hatch, if your childhood leaves you feeling unimportant, unwanted, and unloved, that's the kind of thing that will linger throughout your, your heart for the rest of your life. You know, when Charles Manson had been born, his father was never really around. His mother was a prostitute. And when Charles Manson had been born, she said, no name. And his original birth certificate literally read, no name upon it. That's how he was regarded coming into the world. Well, one night his mother is at a diner very late in the evening and a waitress sees baby Charles lying there and she says, oh, what a beautiful baby boy. And his mother slowly looks up at, at her waitress and says, you think my boy is beautiful? And she said, yes, yes. And with the smirk, she said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you have him if you give me a pitcher of beer. Well, she thinks that she is joking, and she comes back with a pitcher of beer. Later on, she, she has the check, but his mother's gone. She left Charles Manson in the diner. And we think of the name Charles Manson as, as truly on the Mount Rushmore of the most despicable human beings who has ever lived. It doesn't excuse away the behavior at all. But if that was you, can it at least give a little bit of context about how he turned out the way that he did? When coming into this world, he was someone feeling very unimportant, very unwanted, and very much unloved. This is the kind of stuff that will haunt you for the rest of your life. I think there is a show that everybody here is probably acquainted with. We had the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, he was from Philadelphia, right down the street from us, but, but he moves and he goes to, to his uncle's house in California. That's because he had never met his father before. But there's this one episode of the show that, that really has a seismic impact upon my generation especially, where all of a sudden, unbeknownst to him, his dad shows up at the door when Will is about 18 or 19 years old. And they start hanging out, and he, he starts thinking, well, my dad really isn't such a bad guy after all. His dad is a truck driver, so, so he makes a plan that, that, you know, that I'm going to spend my summer break with my dad in his truck on his routes. He's all excited. He comes into the house and says, all right, dad, you ready to go? Only for his dad to once again walk out on his son, and for the very last time at that. 
And Will just stands there very tough at first. He says, you know what? I didn't need my dad growing up all those years. I got all the way to this point without him. I don't need him now. And then at the top of his voice, he shouts at the door where he's still standing, to hell with that guy. To hell with him. Well, he acts tough again, but then he breaks down. And he says to his uncle who's standing there, why doesn't he want me? Why doesn't my dad want me? In other words, what's the matter with me if my own father doesn't want anything to do with me? And then his uncle embraces him in his arms. And then the camera slowly zooms away silently as they are sobbing in each other's arms. And it slowly zooms in on the little statue that he was just about to give his dad. And on the statue was, was a little bitty child on his father's lap who is hugging his father's neck as hard as he can. And that's how the episode ends. When you're someone who feels unimportant, unwanted, and unloved, this is the kind of stuff that will follow you for the rest of your life. And it's been my experience in my own life that Every single person who has been my enemy, who has antagonized me in any way, shape, or form, in every single instance, it was just chronically unhappy people who were not loved by their mother, their father, or a combination of both. And as the old expression goes, enemies are just people whose stories we have not yet heard. This is so often what happens. And so... This morning on this Father's Day, if that is you in any way, shape, or form, I want just for once to make this Father's Day about you. I want to acknowledge the kind of pain that you have dealt with for your entire life and, and all of this baggage that, that you are silently carrying around within your heart. Whether you were abused as a child if you were molested as a child, if you were abandoned, if your father is no longer alive, what, if he was a great father, but, but you're just missing him so much this morning, if you were undervalued, if you were once, once an orphan who was adopted, anything like that, this one is for the brokenhearted this morning. You know, our hearts break when we hear stories like this. But when we open up God's word, our hearts suddenly can empathize with them. When we start reading about God's grace upon this lost and broken world, we discover that, wait a minute, their stories are actually our stories. They are actually us. And we are actually them. Because this is where we come from. Um, it's not our main text this morning, but I just want to read these words to us as we open up Scripture this morning. This is the Apostle Paul reminding a certain church about what they once were B.C. before Christ. Where he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the way in which you once walked. According to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among, he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And so you see, this is what we once looked like. This is what we once were. We were children, not of God, not, nor of Christ, but it says children of wrath. We were actually worthless. We were literally hopeless, orphans. And we will forever remain that, apart from the grace of God. And so here we are, no spiritual father, no spiritual mother, no home, no hope. As he goes on and he says, he says that, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were those who had no hope and without God in the world. That is what we once were. But to add insult to injury, yes, we were all those things. We were orphans. We were helpless. We were hopeless. But as he also says, we are Gentiles. I mean, that, that adds insult to injury, at least in the Jewish world. But to make it even worse, we were also slaves to sin, children of the evil one, because of our lifestyle. And in the Jewish world and society, there is, there is no lower place that you can sink to than if you were an orphan, Gentile slave. You and I would never dream of bringing our dogs into this worship assembly because it would be ridiculous. Dogs are incapable of grasping Scripture. They can learn a few things, but they are incapable of of human intelligence. And after all, all they are is just an animal. We would never bring our dogs into here. And yet to the Jews, in the eyes of first century Jews, that is exactly what a Gentile was. In fact, that's exactly what they would actually call Gentiles. Those, those are the dogs over there. Even Jesus himself on one occasion calls us and calls a woman a dog. Now, there is a lot of speculation. Well, he means it as a term of endearment, but uh, not really. Because in the Jewish world, Gentiles were lower than even dogs were. And yet, as Jesus goes to the cross, though, and as Jesus walks out of that tomb, and as God's Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, all of that is about the change. It's all about the change. And as we come into the book of Romans in chapter 8, now having laid all of that necessary groundwork, now that we have been reminded about what we once were and what we once looked like, now let us marvel at what Jesus has accomplished in his cross and by his empty tomb. Romans chapter 8, and beginning um, in verse 15, this is what he's done for us. Romans 8 and verse 15 says that, that you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. 
But you have received the Spirit. Notice this word of, and what's that word say? Of adoption. You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, and I would add as daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we, yes, that we are the children of God. And if we are the children of God, we are also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified alongside with him. Now emerging from this text are are really three key words to really help us grasp where we are this morning with Christ. That very first word is the word adoption and I mean that is just such a beautiful word for us this morning. Because when you adopt somebody, what that word means is that you are choosing, that you want and desire someone to come into your home. But my favorite understanding of the word adoption means to embrace an outsider and to make him or her as if they were your very own. This is what God is accomplishing through Christ. And I read that a moment ago from the other letter that the Apostle Paul writes, Ephesus. But I love how just before he reminds them about where they once were, here's what he says to them. He says that he, God the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him and in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. My friends, God chose you. God has embraced you and welcomed you as, as his sons and as his daughters and as his disciples into his kingdom. And as somebody who has been ostracized and, and unwanted by, by so many people throughout my life, I just can't tell you how electrifying words like this are to a heart like mine. But imagine all the people who, who heard those words for the very first time who, were, who may have been orphans, who may have been orphans who were sold into slavery. Now Paul is informing them, God chose you. You have been adopted into his family. Here is Jesus saying that, that I know nobody wants anything to do with you. And yet I will love you. I will care for you. I will take you in. I know that you have no home. But I am welcoming you into my kingdom as my sons and daughters. I am spreading out my table so that you of all people can eat at my table as my very own children in my royal kingdom. You have no family whatsoever, but, but I'm going to make you my sons and daughters. And as I look out at you here this morning, I don't see a bunch of church people or church members, but rather what I see when I look out at you this morning is I see my family. 
I see my, my actual brothers and sisters. I mean, that's what he's made us. Brandon, you are my actual brother. Alex, you are my actual sister. Regardless of our age or, or where we've come from, if we were loved by our fathers, if we were not loved by our fathers. This, really, Christ church is one huge orphanage. We're all just a bunch of orphans who has come into his kingdom. God's kingdom is just so beautiful. You see, this one, you know, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this one is for the brokenhearted. Now, another key word that, that Paul uses is the word Abba, and we might not know what that word means. Now, what Abba is, is, is this expression in Aramaic. It is really a term of endearment for, for um, a father. Now, in our own language, there are many different words of endearment for, for our father. There is dad, but mainly what this word really means, the closest equivalent in our language is my daddy, my papa. This is what this word really means. Now, it's been said that a child more or less is going to start speaking between 14 and 18 months. And there were many of us, I'm sure, who, where our, our very first words, it started off as da. And then a few weeks later, it was da, da. And then it was da, 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 da. And yet then at last, our, our very first word, we looked up at our fathers and we said, Daddy. And in the first century, many Jewish children living in Palestine, their very first words would have been something like Ab, 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 Ab. And then at last, they, they look from their crib into the eyes of their dad and, and they say, Abba, dear father, papa, I'm a daddy. And I just look at my own life and I just feel so blessed because that's the kind of father that, that I've always had. I mean, he's the kind of dad who always and still to this day puts himself dead last. I remember how he was literally working 20-hour shifts in a warehouse, multiple days on end, on any given week, so that his family could, could eat and survive. What I love most about my dad is that he, my dad, okay, my dad never taught me how to change a flat tire. My, my dad never taught me how to shoot a deer or how to hit a curveball. But what he did teach me is the only thing that's going to matter when this world is on fire. Where from the crib, he taught my brother and I to love Jesus Christ and to respect the Word of God. He was the one when, at that time in my life, when, when I was literally mute because of my speech deficiency. And he said, David, we are going to have a teen-led service, and I want you to consider preaching. And I just looked at him like, have you started drinking, Dad? I can't speak. But he said, you can do it, David. 
I know that you can do it. And I did. When the time came for me to go to seminary, there were some people sitting me down, David, you can't do this. You can't even have conversations with people. You're, you know, you, you just turn into this mute who, who just can't say three words. And yet my dad and my mom and my grandparents and my brother said, you can do it. God will give you the ability to do it. And I'll never forget how that first time that I spoke in church, my dad is sitting right next to me and he has his arm around me and he says, son, I just want you to know that I, I'm proud of you. And, and then he asked me, David, are you ready? He said, God is going to do wonders through you. And almost 20 years later of speaking, to this day, right before I go up, I, I like to close my eyes and I can almost hear my father's voice. I can almost feel his arm around me asking me, David, are you ready? God is going to do wonders through you today. You can do it. That's the kind of father that I've always had. And yet, regardless of if you can relate with that or not, we all have a heavenly father. A father by which scripture says we cry out, Abba. See, he's not just a father, but he's also a daddy, a papa. And we need his protection every day, every minute of our, our lives. You know, when we let our fathers down, I think everybody can relate with this, right? When you let your father down, when he said, son, I am disappointed in you. That's a very unique pain, isn't it? But when we made that old man beam with pride, though, when we were doing something and we, we looked down and he is just beaming with happiness, I mean, announcing to anybody, I mean, complete strangers, that is my daughter up there. That is my boy up there. It's just one of the things in this world that, that just makes us feel like a million dollars. And that's what we see in this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Because here is Jesus coming up out of the waters with John the baptizer. He's just been baptized and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, God the Father is saying to God the Son, That's my boy. He's doing it. He's getting this kingdom rolling upon the earth. When Jesus is transfigured upon the mountain, he, you know, that very same voice announces to those men who were there, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's my boy. And yet the proudest that he ever was of his son Jesus was when he is yielding up his spirit and he's being killed on a cross. Because Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 53 that it, it had pleased the Lord to crush him and to put him to shame and to grief. And as a result of that, brothers and sisters, 
When God looks at us and he sees us living the Christian life, when he, when he sees us loving unlovable people, forgiving the unforgivable in other people, our Father beams with pride from the heavens and he announces to, to all of the angels in heaven, that's my girl. That's my boy. And in our spirits, we, we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. All those years as Israel is being rebellious, they are going after all these idols. They are playing, you know, the um, harlot, as God says, with them, grieving God to his heart. It's a very sad thing. But when we see Israel start learning how to walk and, and really how to speak the spiritual language, we see this very same God beaming with pride in one place, actually singing over his people saying in another place in Isaiah 43 that when you pass through the fire, I'm going to be with you. And the floods, they will not overflow you because I am the Lord your God. And he actually says there, and I love you. They as well as us to this day, we cry out, Abba, Father. And this one is for the fatherless and for the lonely hearted he says, by bringing Jesus into the world. And the very last word that is very key here is the word heirs. And that, that word heirs is also very significant for us because what is an heir? An heir is a person who has received an inheritance from their father and mother. Oftentimes it is land, it is monetary assets of some kind, but in the spiritual kingdom it is far greater than that, isn't it? In one place it says that, that our, our reward is that we will reign with our Father. His house is going to become as if it is our house, but, but it also says that we, we have in heaven reserved in our name a heavenly inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's all ours in heaven at this very moment. It's almost as if God is saying, this one is for the homeless. This one is for the poor. And this one is for the weary-hearted. And yet, however, here is the most important, really, component of them all. Is that mere declaration, or claiming that we are children of God, that does not make us children of God. Subscribing to a pet list of pet doctrines does not make us children of God. Making sure that we have a certain name on a sign out in front of a cathedral does not truly make us children of God. According to God himself, in our text, here is what determines if we really are God's sons and God's daughters. Here in Romans 8, just before we got to our text this morning, here is really the context of the spirit of adoption that, that he's called us into. Romans 8 and verse 12 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Then, then very strong words. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then notice verse 14 especially. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, 
these are the sons of God. And the opposite is just as true. For all those who are being led by, by sin and by the human flesh, these are not the sons and daughters of God. You see, really, what we find is that to a universe of chronically unimportant, unwanted, and unlovable sinners, the Father of all fathers loved us and welcomed us in as his children. But the reason why he did that is so that we would be led by the flesh no more, but by the Spirit. You know, in a technical sense, when it comes to the prodigal son, technically he was still a son when he left his father's estate. But not really. Because when he goes up to his dad and he says, Dad, give me my inheritance right now. That's just another way of saying, Dad, you're dead to me from now on. That's just code for, I would rather have the pleasures of this world than anything that you or your estate have to offer to me. So I'm going to live the rest of my life as if you were dead. And yet that's what we do when we choose sin over God. It's saying, God, I choose this over your kingdom. I mean, it really is. It's always my goal to really break this down as simply as I can. Because we've seen before that, that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not swinging on chandeliers. I mean, we, we all understand this. What it means, what this is saying, is I believe what Jesus does in Gethsemane. Now, we don't have time to go there, but Mark chapter 14, if you want to read this when you get home. As Jesus is saying that, that, that Father, I don't want to go to the cross. The very last time the word that he uses is not Father. But he says, Abba, Abba, Father, you can do all things. And so I'm asking you to remove the cross from my pathway. And yet, as we know, he, he punctuates it with, but not my will, but yours be done. And then it seems like maybe 12 verses later, he, he's standing before false accusers, but, but he's silent. He's not defending himself. Later on, he is there before a governor, a Roman governor, and all, again, all these false charges, but he keeps silent. Are you the king of the Jews? And finally, he says, yes, it is as you say. I mean, it looks like he is admitting guilt to a lot of people there. But what he's really doing is submitting not to himself or to the flesh, but he's submitting to the spirit. This is exactly what we must do in terms of the Holy Spirit. This is what is being discussed here. Because Jesus is submitting to his own death. And, and here Paul says that, that we too must submit to our own fleshly death and put all of these fleshly lusts to death. Because the flesh, simply put, in our flesh we have something carnal that is leading us seducing us to commit sin. But we also have God's Holy Spirit also leading us, who's trying to orchestrate us to, to say no to sin and to crucify all of those desires. A long time ago, Albert Barnes said this, 
He said either our sins must die or we must die. That's the only way it will be. No man can be saved or enter into heaven practicing or dying in his sins. And so my invitation to us here this morning, if really if there's anybody here who wants to remain the sons and daughters of God, we've got to resemble him and we must honor him with our lives. Maybe for you what this looks like is believing that you really are a child of God. No matter where I go in the church, one of the main struggles is our Christians who are still crossing their fingers thinking, well, I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to hell. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to hell. I'm not sure. Trust it. and Believe that, that yes, you really are God's daughter or God's son. Embrace the fact that, that he has embraced you and welcomed you into his kingdom. Or maybe for others, maybe, maybe we just need to be reminded about where we came from. Where we have all this knowledge, but we become very arrogant in our minds. Maybe we need to be reminded, wait a second. God had to rescue me. God had to adopt me and bring me out from the streets. As Paul says, we have been bought with a price. And yet, what I think will, will help us all this week, if, if, if we will just do this this week, if we will set aside just maybe five minutes, wherever it might be, and just read that last half of um, there in Galatians 5, I want us all to read what the works of the flesh look like, and then the works of the Spirit, and then truly ask ourselves, which one is is the most accurate description of the way that I'm living. And then we will work on it from there. If we will just do that as homework this week. Know that, that you will be coming to a Father who has promised the entire world that never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You see, in God's kingdom, we will never have to be like, like Will Smith and, and marvel, why doesn't he love me? But rather, as it was read to us so beautifully at the Lord's Supper just a moment ago, what we marvel about in the Christian church is how does he love me? Why would he love this mess? Well, it's because he loves us. And it's because he wants to be walking, talking extensions and lights in this world so that even upon the earth that she can have a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven.